Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome everyone to episode number 15 of Matt Memories from Madison Square Garden, a 50-year retrospective, the early years of the WWWF, the WWF, and the WWE. Madison Square Garden, the mecca of professional wrestling, a building that every wrestler wanted to wrestle in. We record one show a month to coincide with the 50th anniversary of a wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden. And to help us look back, as always, at all these shows, a man that went to every wrestling house show at Madison Square Garden for five years straight, starting on August 30th, 1971, Mr. Wrestling himself, John Rizzi. John, how you doing? Happy holidays to you, Tim. Happy holidays to you, John. I, I hope you're enjoying the holidays down there in Tennessee. I know I know you're going to be making a move up to New York very soon, and I hope that's a safe move, but how are your holidays going in Tennessee so far? Well, I'm not moving. I'm just going uh, to visit family. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah, you, you always time. go for the ho- holiday time. But you Now, I don't know where you live in Tennessee, but you always go to this small town, and you take great pictures. What town is that? Franklin, Tennessee. That's the little downtown area. And I was there for the Dickens of a Christmas, 37th annual that they do. And so the t- the town square is literally just three blocks long with kind of a, uh, a centerpiece, which is an old Confederate soldier on a long you know pole, whatever it is, display. Uh, that's where the Christmas tree is. And it's a wonderful little town, a very historic town. It was... Uh, incorporated in 1799 it was one of the probably one of the biggest battles of the civil war the battle of franklin uh where 15,000 uh, confederate and uh, union soldiers were killed over the course of uh, 48 hours so it is a very historic town a very little quaint town it hasn't changed much since i moved here uh, 22 years ago and i just love it i love i love the fact that you could go down to the annual uh, Christmas celebration that they do, and they all dress like like it was Charles Dickens. Uh, I mean, it's just a wonderful, wonderful experience. Uh, the town does it annually, uh, but they also do, you know, the pumpkin festival. There's bluegrass festival. So they close down the downtown area, and thousands of people come from all over, not just Franklin, to participate. And it's, it's a lot of fun, and I always have my camera out and – I walk around and there's all the little vendors and just packed with people and then the food carts and it's just an amazing little place and um, uh, it's actually in the top ten of, of best places to live in the United States. Wow! So it's a it's a wonderful wonderful town and I live about four miles from the downtown area. I live in a an area called Cool Springs, uh, which is more. Uh, metropolitan i guess you say uh you know so anyway i love it here and uh, i know that uh, during the holiday season everybody gets that christmas feeling somewhat as the older you get it kind of dissipates because it's really about the kids yep and 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 that's what you've kind of done yourself i mean i don't know how many people who are listening to this podcast really realize what you do uh when it is this time of year but you are one of the most popular santa clauses on the West Coast, I mean, you were just telling me that you're the official uh, Santa Claus for the, the Rams Christmas party this weekend. Yes, it'll right? be over by the time this airs, yeah. But yeah, yeah of course, yeah. you know, this uh, will come out 
you know, a little after December 18th when the Garden Show was from 72, 50 years later. But you've been really, really busy, and you you kind of you look the part now. I mean, you look like Santa. You've been doing this for how many years now? This is my third year doing Santa. The first year was during the pandemic. Second year, I started doing personal appearances. The first year was all on Zoom because this is what I learned from yeah. working with you doing Zooms. And then last year, I did more personal appearances. This year, I really buckled down, and I started advertising earlier. So November was my time for photos. So I, I met with a lot of photographers. I did like cooking with Santa and traditional Santa shots, and now we're into the season. And you know, being you know part of professional wrestling, being part of radio, being part of these things, I get to walk around and be a ham. I get to you know be a ham, yeah. and that's what you know. I've always been a ham, but now people pay me for being a ham. So I really worked on my suit and my look and things like that. And I've been really fortunate, you know. I've been re- I've been working very hard at you know doing a good job, and that you know. Picking up little things, I belong to the Worldwide Santa Network, and I've learned a lot from these gentlemen about you know things they say and things you do and how to take care of this, a, a crying kid or maybe a child with autism or something like that. So I've been really working hard at it, and it's really starting to benefit. And seeing the joy, you know, it is about the kids, John. We talked about that before. It's about the kids, and everyone says, well, you have a kid until like 10 years old. That's not true. Probably have they start liking Santa maybe three if you're lucky, okay? Maybe two or three. The first couple of years, they're scared of us. M- majority are. But then- oh, I, I, I walk at the mall because it's a little cold to walk downtown, mm-hmm. and Santa is there. And the kids, the young kids, are afraid. Oh, so afraid. But as you get older, then it's like a big deal. And then, you know? then your clock starts to tick because you haven't probably – I'm saying the seven to eight is the – you know, six is perfect. Seven to eight, you're almost losing them. Nine, ten, if you have them to that, you're blessed because kids at school are mm-hmm. talking. You now he's not real. This is not real. And right. the joy – like we've had a lot of joy in our lives doing different things. But you've ever had just joy in your life just by seeing someone as much? You never do, you know? Yeah, sure, family members, but someone you don't even know, they just bring that feeling of the holidays like, oh, Santa, and they look at you and they, with awe yeah. and joy. I, I get more uh, leg tackles every year, leg tackles. Last night I was doing something. All of a sudden I felt something on my leg. It was a little girl. She was like holding on to me for dear life. It's like, oh, it's so cute. Only problem, only problem with being Santa. Here's the only problem, John. Here's the problem I find myself in. I do Santa. So I'm out of the vent. I do Santa for a few hours, you know, say four to six hours. And then I change out of my Santa clothes and I have to go shopping or something. And I go into like a mall or I go to a restaurant or whatever. And I'm there and I see a little kid staring at me. And I go, oh, hi. And I wave. Well, I'm not Santa anymore. I'm Tim now. <laughs> and I'm just a fat old guy with a white beard that's looking at people and I'm scaring kids. So I'm like, I got to remember not to do this. <laughs> don't don't look at you. Know, when you see a kid, you just walk away because you're not Santa. Or you should just wear your little Santa cap. Yeah, at the restaurant. So at least it disarms them a little bit. True, if you're waving. true. But a lot of times I don't want to. I'm done for the day. I'm like in my like yeah, jacket or, you or whatever. You just tell these kids, hey, listen, Santa is now um, uh, off the clock. <laughs> no, they don't understand off the give clock. Them, give, give the parents your card and say, I'd be more than happy to spend quality time with your children and in the proper channels. But you know, a lot of times they're way. just looking at me. They're not looking at me as Santa. They're just looking yeah. at me, so I'm, I'm scaring them. Like, who's this? Who's yeah, this Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, here's just a big guy walking in here. They're just looking at me like any yeah. anybody else. If you walk anywhere else and a, and a kid's looking at you, they don't think you're anything special, just like looking at you. So I yeah, I got to remember, I'm not I, in a Santa suit. I can understand that. But you've done an incredible job. Oh, and, thank you, uh, sir. And maybe too late for people uh, this holiday season to book you for a, a Zoom or a, a, a personal appearance or whatever. But uh, why don't you just give out, you know, to the people who listen to this, I mean, give out, you know, where they can get a hold of you maybe for next season. Sure. It's uh, Jolly Santa Tim on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, get a hold of me in, like, November if you want to do something. You know, if you're around the L.A. area or I love to come see you, I do parties, I do corporate events, do a lot of things like that. But the thing I I like doing one of the most is, like, a Zoom. You know, I I do it with grandparents, Zooming with their grandchildren anywhere in the world. Um, I've done Japan. I've done, you know, a lot of the military, big with the military for sure, doing all over the world, Germany is another one I've done a lot of and they're just fun and I, I send you a little form to fill out 
on the kids and the form is basically you know do you have an elf on the shelf do you have uh, a dog do you have this and it goes down so I'm, I'm telling them it's, it's different from going to the mall where they goes what's your name I know their name I know their likes I know the dislikes I know what I got them last year I know what they left me last year I know what they're doing good I know what they're doing bad so it's more of a personal experience when I do that but since I'm doing so many personal appearances this year I don't get to do as many zooms as I'd like to so if you want to zoom definitely next year get in touch with me get in touch with me early and I, I will get you on my list that's great hey listen I'm really happy for you you've been Thank really you. busy and you know that was kind of a thing for me I mean I always loved Santa <laughs> I mean I remember as a young kid going to Woolworth which was a chain department store very historic store oh yeah on Knickerbocker Avenue in the Bushwick section of Brooklyn and I remember that was the first time I got to meet Santa and took a picture with him and I still have that picture so maybe I'll put it up for our patrons uh so they could take a look at it but I did try the Santa thing once and that was um in the mid-70s I think it could have been 75 or 76 uh, and I had a niece who was born in 72, so she was like four. Could have been like 78. She might have been four or five. I had my two nephews. One was like one and a half, two, and my other nephew might have been three, four. They were all close together in age. So I decided that I was going to uh, dress as Santa, and I didn't have the uh, resources, I guess, to get a really good Santa suit, so I got a plastic one. It was like a plastic suit with a plastic hat and the head that, you know, the, the beard that you kind of, the cheap looking beard you put on there. Yep. And I taped cotton balls on my eyebrows <laughs> to give it the old authentic Santa feel. I didn't even put the mask on right. I think I put, I put the opening for the mouth over my nose and I put lipstick on the tip of my nose. So it looked red and rosy. <laughs> And so I'm in there, and I'm and it's fucking hot. Yeah, they're hot. In, yeah, in the apartment. Yeah, the it's hot in the apartment, the, the house rather. Well, my sister, uh, my oldest sister, who's not with us any longer, but uh, the heat was up, and and then she goes up there to get the kids, and they come down, and I'm like, ho 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 ho, Merry Christmas! And it was so hot that my the eyebrows that I had taped on my uh, the the cotton balls I taped on my eyebrows fell off. And uh, my niece was like, that's not Santa. That's Uncle Johnny. And it was kind of like they didn't know whether to laugh or cry. Yeah. The little ones. But that was my one and only experience is playing Santa. You know, here we talk in wrestling. We're supposed to anyway. But yeah, I watched the You know, the Rudolph show every year. I mean, I love that show with Hermie the dentist and the claymation. And yeah. Of, and, and, and I watched It's a Wonderful Life and. And uh, I, I, I watched the Charlie Brown Christmas. It's just and I watch the Macy's Parade every year on Thanksgiving. Me too. And March of the Wooden Soldiers. And me too. It, it's all it's all time tested traditions. It's so that funny I can't, that at this age even give up. We, we talk about this stuff and, and there's going to be people all around the country and all around the world that don't understand why we watch these things. And it's because um, back in the day in New York, we only had how many channels? We had five. Is that correct, John? We had, you uh, know, two, four, seven, nine, eleven, Evan. and thirteen. And 13. 13 was the PBS channel. Two, four, seven, two, four, five, seven, nine, eleven, and 13. Okay. Um, and I knew it was 9 and 11 that would show like March of the Wooden Soldiers or they do yes. A Wonderful Life. And still do. And they still, oh, really? They still do. And the reason yeah. why they would do that a lot because um, they, they lost their copyright. You know, no one, no one read the copyright. That's why A Wonderful Life was played so much when we were younger because it lost its copyright. And only a few yeah. years ago did they pick up the copyright again. Now NBC has it, so they can, they only allowed to air it twice a year. Yep, is that crazy? Yep, yeah, that is crazy. So yeah, I, I just I, I why we watch these things, and I'm sure there are people in other parts of the country that go, oh, I didn't watch that, but I watched this, you know, yeah. because well, it was PIX uh, Channel 11 in New York. WPIX still runs on Thanksgiving morning, the March of the Wooden Soldiers. And then directly after that is the uh, annual Honeymooners Marathon. Yeah, the Honeymooners Marathon. I, I just I bought March of the Wooden Soldiers on DVD so I can see it out here in L.A. I love that movie. Yeah, love it. Love and it. also Miracle on 34th Street with Natalie Wood when she was just a little baby. I mean, that was yeah. such a great movie. And the Santa, that was, this, that was a story about them taking this guy to court and they couldn't disprove that he wasn't really Santa Claus. He won an Oscar for that, you know. He did, yeah, yeah. I love that movie. Yeah, 
And Natalie Wood, I've heard some great stories from Natalie Wood um, about how she really thought he was Santa. He, he treated everyone so nice on set. She believed yeah. he was the original Santa Claus. Yeah. I know we're talk, supposed to talk wrestling, but this is a holiday yeah, well, kind of yeah, show. Yeah, well, you know, this episode is kind of Christmassy because uh, wrestling fans got uh, something that they had wished for for a very long time on this show, uh, which was really almost a holiday show at the Garden. And that was uh, uh, the ability to see Mil Moscaris for the very first time, and we'll be talking about that. Yeah, the first time a uh, masked wrestler wore a full whole mask. So let's get into the card yeah. right now. Madison Square Garden, Monday, December 18th, 1972. Uh, John, where'd you get the tickets? Where'd you sit? Uh, for this show, I remember uh, sitting not, you know, sixth, seventh row, the same, you know, the same location. I can't remember specifically where I got the tickets, Ticket Tron or the Garden Box Office. I don't know. I mean, uh, but the seats were fairly good. It was around this time, which I, uh, which was in the middle of December, that I started to really needle my parents. Like, I want a movie camera for Christmas. I want a movie camera for Christmas. So, um uh, that was my personal wish. And this particular show, I had my little Instamatic camera there. And I was disappointed. I remember being disappointed because for some reason the flash wasn't working. And so any picture that I that I took uh, of Moscaris's debut and, the you know, some of the others that I really wanted to see there. And we'll get into that as we cover it. Uh, it was a uh, it was a lost night in regard to uh, getting content back in 1972 for mother's day is around the corner find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from blue nile from timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones blue nile has something she'll adore need a fast most items can ship overnight plus enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns don't miss our special mother's day deals save big on the season's most beautiful trends for a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. You were even back then trying to get content. Do you remember the build-up for TV for this card? Yeah, I do, actually. Obviously, it was the return match with uh, Morales going against uh, uh, Ray Stevens. But the build-up was really Moscaris. It was Moscaris. And it was um, uh, so exciting to know that this guy that I've wanted to see because on Channel 41 and all the wrestling magazines, superstar. Uh, but also the question about the mask. And even with my buddy Frank Favalli, who I went to all these shows with, uh, he was arguing. They're not going to let him wear the mask. I was like, he can't come here with that open mask. And it was just kind of a it was kind of a, you know, back and forth. Uh, he's you know, he's not going to wear it. I'm like, he's got to wear it. They got to do something. And. And that's what I remember pre-show about just the conversations that were being had. But it was an exciting announcement uh, about Moscaris coming to uh, New York. Now, so he didn't do any TV itself. Maybe they just announced it. He didn't, like, do any matches um, on TV. You know, I don't really recall, uh, but, but he might have done TV in regard to – or maybe it was the second time he came to town. Because I don't really remember when he did his first TV taping in in Philly. If it wasn't, it might have been in the mid seventies. Uh, this might have been just based on the uh, the weekly uh, appearances that he made on uh, Channel Forty One from the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles. I mean, that's how people knew him. Okay. I was, I was wondering about that. I don't remember. I, I yeah. have to say I don't remember. No worries. No worries. Um, the card was, for the first time in a long time, this is a, this is not only a sellout, you broke gate records. The WWWF set a new gate record with 22,906. So, Mascaris or some of the other things going to go on the card, people wanted to see it. There were two reasons for this. And I have to say they were both based from the performers from L.A. coming in. Mascaris and also Great Goliath who was a mainstay villain and a tag team partner at Black Gordman, who had made his debut the month before. Uh, but th I think those two made it a sellout because you got to understand that the fans, obviously watching the WWF, but in Spanish on Channel 41, the Olympic Auditorium show was always in Spanish. And uh, those guys were just as big a t as stars as what was being pushed on Channel 47, which was the WWF. So combining those worlds, I feel that that is the main reason why this did a record gate uh, for that night in December of 1972. 
Interesting. Okay, let's get into the card. Match number one, Joe Turco beat Black Jack Slade in nine minutes, 10 seconds. Nothing to say. Joe Turco, you know, my beloved Joe Turco, my tag team partner. Uh, Joe, I mean, what can, and Black Jack Slade was, we we had discussions around him on the past podcast. So uh, not memorable. I don't even remember seeing it. Maybe I was getting popcorn. It, it is what it is. It's an opening card match. Usually you put these yeah. things on. Back in the day, this is how they would do it. They wouldn't have all this fireworks and everything go off. They put a match yeah. on like this that would last nine minutes, and people say, oh, the match is started. we got to get in there. Grab your drinks. Go to the bathroom. Do what you got to do, and rush in because you don't want to miss anything. And that's why these opening matches are so long. You knew that the matches were going to start usually around 825, you know, because it's bell time is always at 830. And uh, from the rafters, People started whistling. Everyone just started whistling. And you knew that, all right, now and started people started building and and the whistling is starting. And then when the, you heard that bell ring and the lights go up to light up that ring, that was it. And everyone was like, here we go. It's time for another show at the Garden. Match number two, Tony Gurria beat Bull Pimente in 10 minutes, 46 seconds. His nickname was the Bull, but he went also as Vincenti Pimenti which was kind of a cool name, uh, but uh, typical job guy, you know, enhancement talent or whatever, Gurria, uh, just that matinee idol beating uh, Pimenti, which was no big surprise. And the finisher that he used, which which was always cool, there were two finishers. Either he'd drop kick you three times and get the one, two, three, or he'd put you in an abdominal stretch. And I believe in this match with uh, Vincenti Pimenti that he actually uh, beat him with the abdominal stretch. And uh, Pomente was also involved in handicap matches for, with Johnny Raz. They lost to Gorilla yes. Monsoon. Um, I wanted to bring up handicap matches because do they even do handicap matches anymore or do they even use that term anymore? Uh, not No, I mean, they used to do them prominently back in the day. I mean, Pomente in this uh, uh, match, obviously, the one you referred to was November 16th, 1970. And that's when he made his first garden appearance uh, when he teamed up with Johnny Raz against Gorilla Monsoon. But handicap matches and i was in one you know me and you were Silvana Susser. but it was if you wanted to uh if you wanted to get a a, a heel over uh you would put a, a handicap match in and and a lot of the big heels on one of the tv matches would be even guys like stan stasiak would have a, a handicap match against two jobber guys that's the way they looked unbeatable yeah and andre really always worked handicap matches against the enhancement guys for most of his TV appearances. Match number three, the great Goliath, there's your man, pinned Mario Soto in seven minutes. Yeah, uh, they gave him the victory coming in. Uh, great Goliath, um, certainly uh, just excited to see him. This was his first Garden appearance. He was one half of that great tag team with Black Gordman. Uh, he also was in a, a 1985 wrestling movie called Grunt. Gordman and Goliath won the NWA World Tag Team titles in 1978 when they defeated the Steigers, Kurt and Carl. Just a great heel, great brawler, exciting to see. Uh, and Soto, I mean, he uh, had an amazing run at the Garden. He had 47 MSG appearances. So uh, when you're looking at these two guys, they were kind of equally matched when it comes to skills. Uh, but with Goliath coming in from L.A. off the TV, and uh, they might have had ideas about long-term for him and Gordman coming in, but that never materialized. So obviously Goliath was going to get the win, and he got the win um, uh, in just seven minutes. Match number four, Sonny King went to a 20-minute draw with Buddy Wolf. Yeah, snoozer. Uh, Sonny King uh, uh, way down on the card. He was listed as a showboat Sonny King in most of the wrestling magazines. He had his run. He had his tag team title reign with uh, Chief J. Strongbow. Uh, but uh, he was on his way out, on his way down the card. And Buddy Wolf would just come in uh, for, you know, uh, he was he was kind of like uh, a guy that they used uh, against some of the uh, featured attractions, as we'll find out. Because uh, he fights Moscaris and he is the opponent for Andre the Giant in 1973 for Andre's debut. But a good, a good, as they say, you know, a good worker and a, a good hand, as they would say in the, the business these days. But it was a 20 minute draw, nothing to remember uh, from that particular match. I wanted to ask you about intermissions. When would they do yeah. an intermission at the Garden? Because I remember back in the day, they used to do intermissions at wrestling matches. 
uh, it was all it was staggered, different ty- different places. Sometimes they do an intermission after the uh, uh, heavyweight championship match. Sometimes they do an intermission uh, when they announce the next show at the Garden to give fans maybe a little bit more time to run down and see if they get a ticket or so. But it was never like at the same point of each show. It was always in different places on the show. Got it. So it wouldn't be like after match number six, you'd have an intermission. Or it could have been when the crowd was a little bit too frantic. If there was a match that the fans maybe were getting a little bit too amped up, uh, and when that match completed, to give it time to cool off, they'd say, let's take a 20-minute intermission. Interesting. And those are things you don't see anymore. There are no more intermissions because they're going for TV time. Right. Match number five is something, if anybody has this on video, I would love to see this. Gorilla Monsoon beat Chuck O'Connor in six minutes, 17 seconds. I would love to see this match because of who Chuck O'Connor turned into, Big John Studd, versus Gorilla Monsoon. I would love to see how he wrestled back in the day. I think it'd be amazing. I agree. I mean, if there was any footage of that, I'd love to see it. And I was a month shy from having my 8mm camera there, Tim, so I couldn't help out by any stretch of the imagination. But anyway, Monsoon against O'Connor. O'Connor still not winning at the Garden, and he became such a prominent superstar years later and tag team champions with uh, Killer Kowalski's executioners. But yeah, I mean, for some reason, they just wouldn't give him the rub and and give him a win. But he wasn't losing to a jabroni in this match either. I mean, it was Monsoon, and Monsoon, when he was in the ring, uh, Monsoon wasn't going to get, you know, pinned by anyone. But uh, he beat uh, O'Connor pretty handily. Probably, uh, I don't think it was a pin. It might have been a submission via bear hug. We were talking earlier about watching the the, the wrestling from Los Angeles. Um, a lot of the wrestlers who came in. Did you feel uh, that the, that these wrestlers who came in are getting a lot of applause at the time? Because I'm looking at the next match is El Olimpico, which is a great Mexican wrestler. How you know? Did you feel it like these Mexican wrestlers are getting more of a pop than like Gorilla Monsoon did, or things like that, or about equal? Not not a guy like Olympico. Well, I mean, like some of the other guys, some of the other guys. So if we say like the Great Goliath, do you hear the pop? Yeah, well, the he great would Goliath? get uh, he would get like oohs and ahs because it was almost like it was like they were so like this is really the guy from Los Angeles, and uh, so I mean they would get well, he was a heel, so we get extra boos because he he did play the heel. But there were those um, bigger responses when there was kind of an attraction coming in, you know, and 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 for me, I was just uh, personally. I was so excited just to see these guys that I'd just seen on TV and uh, never thought I'd be seeing LA guys coming into the garden. It was it was a different time. It was it, when these are it this was. is special. This is why you want to go to the matches to see these guys. Uh, match number six: El Olimpico and Victor Rivera beat Dory Funk Senior and Terry Funk in a two out of three falls, um, two falls to one match. Fifteen minutes, three seconds. This sounds unbelievable. Yeah, it was um, it was unbelievable, especially uh, uh, the third fall of the match, uh, which su- surprised everybody. But Rivera, they were giving a big push to, and the Funks were there now on a semi regular basis. They uh, started wrestling at the Garden uh, in the nineteen seventy one, and it was always great to have them in town. Uh, and they were just true uh, legends, even at that time. Dory Senior, especially, and Terry was really just getting started. Uh, but in this match, and Olympico, one note about Olympico, he wore the uh, the cutout mask. So even though Moscris is on the card, and this left a lot of speculation, uh, even with my friend Frank and I, see, Olympico's wearing the cutout mask. They're not going to let Moscris come in and wear his mask. So uh, Olympico had the cutout mask. He didn't have the full face mask. If he, if he had the full face mask on, you would know for sure that Moscris was going to follow up later on in the show with his mask on. I don't think it was an intentional swerve uh, by Vince McMahon Sr., but it was, uh, it, was it, it brought discussion like, this sucks, is Moscris going to come out with the full mask? But anyway, getting back to the match, fall number one, Dory had Olympico submit with his finisher, the famous finisher, the spinning toehold, and in the second fall, the Funks were disqualified for uh, double-teaming and tossing Rivera over the top rope. And in fall number three, this was a real shocker because Rivera pinned uh, Dory Funk Sr. with a missile drop kick, and the referee gave an incredibly fast count of a one, two, three. And it was it was sad. Uh, there was only a couple of more appearances from uh, Dory Sr. at the Garden. One of those, uh, uh, or two of those, actually, I captured on film. 
because uh, he passed away of a massive heart attack in, I believe it was the middle to end of 73. So um, one of the last times we were to get to sh- uh, see Dory Sr. But this was a, uh, a shocker, especially with Rivera and Olympico, who was really an enhancement guy, if you look at it, uh, beating uh, this uh, legendary tag team of Dory Funk Sr. and Terry Funk. All right, match number six. This is the big one. The first mask wrestler to wear a full mask at Madison Square Garden. Yes or no? Mil Mascaris pinned the spoiler in seven minutes, 20 seconds. What happened, John? Well, it was exciting to say the least. I mean, the place erupted when he came out. Mascaris would come out because I always loved his white mask with the black accentuating marks on it with the M in the middle, and that was kind of his mainstay mask. He comes out with another mask on, but when he would get introduced and the place is going wild, he'd rip that first mask off, and there's the classic Moscris mask. And everyone was just, like, so excited. I mean, he almost got a hero's welcome at the Garden, uh, and him coming in uh, to uh, face the spoiler, it was uh, it was amazing. It really was one of the highlights of my entire fandom being able to see this guy that I've only uh, adored watching on TV and reading in the magazines, you know, sitting not too far from him at ringside. Uh, Moscris, also known as his real name, uh, Aaron Rodriguez. Uh, he debuted July 20th, 1963. He retired, had a long, long career, 2019. Uh, he made his international uh, wrestling debut in 1968 from Mexico, and he went to the Olympic Auditorium in Los Angeles and immediately caught on with the fans over there, became a superstar. And other highlights of his uh, career, in 1974, uh, Mill uh, was the champion of the short-lived IWA, International Wrestling Association, that was based in New York City. And it's really kind of interesting is that here he is, uh, McMahon is bringing him in for some shots at the Garden. Who knows what the long-term plan was? And then he gets contacted by Pedro Martinez, Eddie Einhorn, and they were running the IWA, and they made him the champion because they thought that they were going to go up again. And they tried the first national promotion, the IWA. So Moscris is their champion. It was kind of copycatting what McMahon did, where you're going to be pushing an ethnic champion as your champion, especially in the Northeast. But Moscaris also had that fan following everywhere just based on the wrestling magazines and some of the towns that were uh, syndicating the Los Angeles Olympic Auditorium stuff. So he came in as as a superstar. They can never make headway in the New York market. They couldn't get into the buildings that they wanted to get in because of uh, blocks from uh, Vince McMahon. So they held, uh, uh, you know, their first major show in New York area, at the really rundown Roosevelt Stadium in 1975. Actually, I was at that show and he fought Ivan Koloff there in the pouring rain. Uh, it was just, uh, uh, it was exciting, but they, they couldn't get any traction because they couldn't get into the major arenas. And this was the first time that promoters from around the country all kind of got together and blackballed them from these arenas. When you have McMahon working with the NWA and the AWA and the other territories to box them out, because they wanted to go national. And ironically, you know, this is what Vince McMahon Jr. did anyway. He went national and he didn't give a shit what anyone else thought. Uh, but Moscow's was also a big movie star. I mean, he starred in uh, 20 movies uh, uh, in Mexico. Uh, he was um, he was someone that was uh, just revered. He definitely was could have been the main reason that show was sold out. Just like the ladies' matches, which were uh, several months early when Moolah debuted as the first women's match, this was historically significant as the very first masked wrestler, fully masked wrestler, to be at Madison Square Garden. Now, in doing the research for this, and I really found it really interesting, uh, Richie Garcia, of course, always sends us some really good notes about this, and he talked about this anti-mask law that was passed in New York City in 1845, which kind of prohibited anyone from wearing masks. Uh, So what I'm going to do is I'm going to go back and I am actually going to read the actual law that was passed uh, at that time. Oh, so uh, uh, let me check it out right here. Gather around, children. Gather around. This is a Christmas story. Ho, ho, ho. About (laughs) mask wrestlers being barred and all mask people, actually. Uh, The New York Penal Law 240.35, number four 
was the anti-mask law passed in New York City in 1845. The intent was to discourage armed uprisings by tenant farmers in the Hudson Valley who were using disguises to attack law enforcement officers. So the law reads, being masked or any manner disguised by unusual or unnatural attire or facial alteration remains or congregates in a public place with other people so masked or disguised or knowingly permits or aids persons so masked or disguised to congregate in a public place, except that contact is not unlawful when it occurs in connection with a masquerade party or like entertainment event in which such entertainment is held in a city which has promulgated regulations in connection with such affairs, permission is first obtained from the police or appropriate authorities. So I guess you had to get permission to wear a mask. Whether this was the reason that mask wrestlers could not appear at the garden is an interesting topic to discuss. But what brought Moscaris in, and he would certainly not come to New York unless he was able to wear that full mask. Moscaris, unlike others like Olympico and the Russians when they come in, and he refused to wrestle without the mask. He told McMahon, I'm, I will not wrestle at the garden unless I can wear my mask. Uh, and he was so popular. McMahon lobbied, this is McMahon Sr., lobbied for a change in the law. And no doubt uh, the money found its way into the state officers or the state coffers through the State Athletic Commission. So there was a deal that was made or cut with the New York State Athletic Commission who might have got and used lobbying to change the law. And it was changed and it granted uh, the permission for Moscaris to come in and wear that mask. So there was a lot of political wrangling. Uh, for Moscris to be approved to come into the garden. And then, of course, you know, he stabs McMahon in the back like a year later, you know, and goes with the IWA as their champion. Um, so a, a couple of things I want to ask you about this. First of all, we were talking about like the spoiler, Olympico, um, the rugged yeah. Russians. After this card, were they able to come back and wear their masks? The others? Yes. For whatever reason, Olympico never wore the mask, uh, the full mask. He always opted now for that cutout but other other mass wrestlers and i'm trying to think of uh, who else would i would remember from that time like, like period. the spoiler did he come back the, the, when he came well, back no he this? didn't wear his mask either hmm. and this might have been his i don't know if this was his last appearance or not but no he didn't he didn't only moscris was the the guy i guess maybe for several years until the executioners, because the executioners wore their, the black mask. Which was a great gimmick, was by the 75. way. Yeah, that was a great What's gimmick. That? that was a great gimmick. I love the executioner gimmick. I, I was so it scared was. of them. I love them. Um, Even though you knew who, and most people knew who they were, Kowalski's body was always like identifiable. <laughs> yeah. And uh, Chuck O'Connor, I mean, it, it, everyone knew it was them. I didn't know. You, you were informed. I was a kid. At the, I didn't remember any of that stuff. But I, and I got, you know, there was rumors about that anyway, why they wore the mask. Really? Because at that time, uh, Kowalski was getting uh, uh, hair implants. Oh, interesting. You know, I do remember watching on TV when the mass superstar came in, and I think it was Gorilla Monsoon. Whoever's doing the commentary, it was a great line they said. They said, why does he wear a mask? You should open the mask. He said, well, he's probably, you know, a professional football player or a professional this, and he doesn't want anybody else knowing he's making money on the side being a wrestler. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a great angle. Getting back one last time from Mil Mascaris, I went and met him a few years ago. He was actually doing a signing here in Los Angeles, and I went and I met him. I was the only person online of non-ethnicity to see him, and he noticed that when I saw him, and he's like, oh, hi. And I said, I used to watch you on, you know, in the WWF uh, back in the day when I was a kid, and uh, he, he just started talking to me about it. He was like, oh, really? Oh, that's very interesting. Oh, that w I wasn't there very long, you know? It was just huge to meet him because I was like, that became, when I saw him wrestle, I became a fan of his so much and I never got to see him in person like you did. But meeting him in person was, you know, totally worth the wait. Well, it was I, really I cool. booked him that one time in Phoenix. I mean, he was in my main event and, and my very last show that I ever promoted as a wrestling promoter at the Arizona State Fair in Phoenix. And uh, that was in 1996. And I put him in my main event. You know, the story's in my book, but, um, it left a very bad distaste for me with Mil Moscaris. Uh, you know, uh, and I still revere him to this day for what he did in his career, but it was one of the most bizarre interactions that I ever had with a uh, wrestler. 
Uh, well, first of all, he shows up, and he shows up kind of late, and he gives me his plane ticket, which I had bought him a plane ticket, and he goes, John, uh, I upgrade myself to first class, so I need to be reimbursed. And I'm like, but I paid for your ticket. <clears throat> I can't give you, you know, first class uh, ticket. I mean, we didn't work that out in our contract or whatever. No, I want reimbursement from this. And and that was kind of like, I, I thought it was pretty shitty. Yeah. All right. So, and, and he, and he, you know, he did okay. It was a show that I lost a shitload of money on. It was not a, it was not a good, it was kind of like a revenue share out there. And it, it just, uh, it, it just didn't work out. And it, it, it kind of got me out. I was like, I'm done, you know, with this whole thing. But anyway, he kept calling me after the show had been done and I'm back in, you know, New York and he's calling me like, John, Mil Moscowitz, I want the reimbursement for the first class ticket. I'm like, Mill, I'm not I'm not paying you this. And it was so ironic that when I finally got disgusted and got out of the wrestling business, okay, you know, it's a year later and I'm in my apartment and my mom uh, stayed with me on Long Island. It's like a year later after this show, the phone rings and I'm out of wrestling. I'm, I'm working in country radio on Long Island now. Yeah. I'm doing really well. And, and the phone rings and my mother answers the phone and she listens and she gives me the phone. She goes, Johnny, there's a Moscaro, a Mr. Moscaro on the phone. I was like, um, hello, John, Mil Moscodis. I was like, oh, hey, Mil, how are you? What is going on with this plane ticket? I was like, listen, Mill Moskowitz, I'm out of the fucking wrestling business, and I've been out of the wrestling business now for almost a year. And I told you when we did the deal, I wasn't paying for a first-class ticket, and I'm certainly not going to pay for one now. Yeah. And I hung up on him. You know, John, I, I heard stories about how difficult he was to work with in the ring. I didn't know how difficult no jobs. he was. No jobs. Even even when he was in his 70s or whatever. When you were, No job. No job. No job. Well... I mean, look what he did. I mean, he he was very selfish in the ring. He was a, one of the best performers ever I, on, on on the Mexican side, the Lucha Libre side. He was an attraction. He was beloved. He was uh, in great physical condition. Uh, he had that it factor, that charisma. You know, the man of a thousand masks and a hold to match everyone was kind of his MO. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I loved the guy. I mean, he was one of my all-time favorites and still is to, you know, when it comes to that. And I never forget even buying there was a, these special books from Japan and this was a thick all Mil Moscaris book. I got it through actually Dr. Mike Leno years ago in Los Angeles. He had found one and I still revere the guy. I still love the guy as a performer and what he meant to the business all those years ago. But the horror stories that you hear from people who were in the ring with him, he was not cooperative, especially towards the latter part. I mean, Cactus Jack has an infamous story about the uh, Clash of the Champions show uh, that uh, you know, the match he had with Vil Moscaris. And the only reason that Cactus uh, said that people would remember that match is because Cactus took this incredible bump off the ring apron on the cement and splattered on the floor. That was the only way he felt people were going to remember because Moscaris wouldn't give him anything in the match. Wow. So, uh, yeah, anyway, the good and bad of Mil Moscaris, Aaron Rodriguez legend but th this was his first appearance in new york he wore the mask he beat the spoiler pretty handily seven minutes 20 seconds he'd have these great cross body uh moves where he would leap in the air and he he kind of hit the guy in the chest uh, as he's running the ropes and then he goes up on the top rope and he delivers that really really good cross body from the top with great elevation and one, two, three, it's over, and the crowd goes wild. Yeah, it was a great move. And as a photographer, I always wondered if you knew where he was going to go because some photographers get that great shot, you know, of the opponent's yes. back and him in the air. Yeah, I, I have so many great shots of Moscaris uh, that I shot, even uh, when the IWA appeared in uh, Jersey for that debut show against Ivan Koloff. These photos almost look like artwork. I mean, it was they were black and white, and a lot of them on my social media – but just the way the lighting was, and th these shots are like classic black and white. They look like paintings in a way. I shot so many pictures of Moscaris. I, I mean, I just love the guy until I, you know, promoted a match with him. <laughs> and, you, but, and then uh, you didn't. Other than that, like I said, in my top 10 of all time, is Moscaris is going to be on that list. He's on both top 10s. Top 10 to work with and top 10 not to work with.
Yeah. yeah. An asshole, but he was great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to match number seven. Come on, it's Christmas time, Oh, let's go to match number seven, Johnny. WWF heavyweight champion Pedro Morales beat Ray Stevens in 14 minutes, 10 seconds in the return match. Yeah, it was, um, you know, that first match was brawly and bloody and exciting. This one, especially because it was uh, it was following Moscaris, you know, too. So, I mean, it could have took a little steam out of the crowd, but Morales still beloved. It was uh, 14 minutes, 10 seconds, as you said. Uh, Morales pinning Stevens with a sunset flip after Stevens thought he had won with a Boston Crab. Uh, so Stevens has Morales in the Boston Crab. Morales is moving around trying to get out of it. And then, you know, Morales reaches and puts his hand on the rope and the referee taps Stevens on the back like, all right, I won. I'm the champion. Raises his arms up. Morales gets behind him, throws him into the ropes, turns him around in the sunset flip, pins him one, two, three. And that was the end of it. That's awesome. Hey, it's a nice way to end the match. I kind of I kind of like that. Little, yeah. Little, yeah, it was little good. It was good. It was a little tricky. A little, little tricky. tricky on Morales' part, but uh, uh, the fans went home very happy. Oh, speaking of fans going home happy, how would you rate this show, John? Uh, I would say uh, big thumbs up. I, I couldn't agree more. Because of yeah. Moscaris, because of the great Goliath. Those those are two. I would go even with the Gorilla Monsoon, be Chuck O'Connor, but uh, yeah. the Funks being ba- being in a tag team. The Funks. You yeah. know, and Ray Stevens but, and, and uh, Morales. Yeah, but for me personally, it was the fact that I'm seeing these uh these people from channel 41 from olympic auditorium in los angeles that was my favorite wrestling i liked that tv show even more than what wwf was doing and getting to see mil moscris in person and the great goliath uh, you were only anticipating more of that type of stuff in 1973 you know what's so great about it also um because i watch uh, wrestling from japan at times if you can watch a match and not understand the commentating and still enjoy it that's a great match yes so anyway, I give it a thumbs up, man. Fantastic. Hey, uh, John and I want to thank again all our Patreons, www.patreon.com slash John Rizzi. Join the family. Join the fun. Um, we, what are you adding to Patreon recently, John? What, what have we been putting up there? Well, we, we actually took a little bit of a break because of the holidays, but we're, we're putting more content up there now that we're coming back. We did a best of, of the, uh, 1992, the top stories of 1992. Uh, but we have, uh, you know, more uh, classic vintage audio from WWF in 1975 and 77 up there now. Probably going to do a photo set of Mil Moscaris, uh just based off of this this episode. And I'll, I'll pick some of those shots that we're talking about and I'll give the fans uh, or the patrons uh, access to a bunch of Moscaris pictures uh in uh in collaboration with this episode nice so i'll make sure i do that when we when we do that content uh so uh but we're also now getting into 73 and 73 is a pivotal year that's when i get the eight millimeter camera that's when my pictures start getting better that's when i'm taking this a little bit more seriously uh, you know so uh, i think we have uh there and and for the regular listeners of the pro wrestling spotlight podcast you're going to get a lot of stuff. 1993, now this is 73 that we talk about, but 1993 was such a huge year in my career and in pro wrestling because we start the year off. First episode, we kind of talked about what was going to be happening. Let me get Jesse the Body Ventura on for a big interview. Um, Paulie dangerously gets fired from WCW. And then we cover Andre the Giant's death on the last week of January uh, which was in 1993, Andre died. And I was listening to the show that I did uh, when I found out about it. Got on the phone, Frenchie Bernard, uh, who he and his wife Jackie were the caretakers of Andre's farm and lived with Andre on the farm in North Carolina. So I got Frenchie on to talk about, was it true? How did he, you know, I didn't keep the guy on very long, but he was able to confirm that Andre had indeed passed away. And this was on my uh, Pro Wrestling Spotlight radio show, which uh, people will be hearing at the end of January 2023, 30 years ago. And I have booked through a guy named Chris Owens, who's probably the most foremost Andre the Giant historian out there. Uh, he got a hold of Jackie. Frenchie Bernard is now passed away as well. But Jackie, Frenchie's wife, is still alive. And still in North Carolina, and she's going to do the podcast. She's going to come on and reminisce about Andre. Wow. Uh, so that's a big one. That and is then, big. And, you know, we go back on WEVD, 
which is a big move for me on, on you know back 30 years ago. And then our first show on WEVD, we have to cover the unfortunate suicide of Kerry Von Erich. And I had gotten on the phone with the police department in Texas and got that sound on the radio on the radio episode of uh, the sergeant giving the detailed report, some of it pretty graphic, uh, that was on the pro wrestling spotlight. And then we have Ultimate Warrior who leaves the WWE. F and he comes on the radio show. So we have an amazing, and then Conan comes on shortly thereafter because that's when I put together, that's our first meeting uh, with Conan, Antonio Pena, Ron Scholar, myself, uh, Carol Kirkendall, uh, Daryl, who managed Salt and Pepper. And we were putting together the AAA deal to bring them into the United States in August of that, of 1993. So if you haven't listened to the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, it's going to be amazing of what you're going to hear as we go back 30 years. And on this show, in our next episode, it's the first time I shoot movies at Madison Square Garden for that Lonnie Main versus Pedro Morales main event, the Vachon brothers, and others. So uh, we got some really good shit happening, not just on Patreon, but if you continue to listen to this show month after month and the Pro Wrestling Spotlight podcast, wherever you get your favorite podcast check it out we got a lot of great shit happening for next year absolutely patreon.com slash john rizzi is where you get be part of the community join the fun and also get some great stuff i would i can't wait to see some of these pictures of mil mascaris that you're not putting watermarks on these things john you're giving them to people who are patreons yes that's the good thing about what i put up on the patreon account is like these are unwatermarked photos fantastic our next garden show january 15th 1973 first of the show of the year headlining lonnie moondog maine versus pedro morales for the title wait, wait he's from uh, was it crabtree oregon yeah <laughs> I, I was thinking crabtree, oregon. John, richie richie he kills me once again we want to thank uh shout out to scott teal and crowbar press yeah absolutely wrestling in the garden is the book it's our bible and that is on Crowbar Press. You can get a copy of it by going to his website, which is basically crowbarpress.com. And all of these little uh, tidbits, artifacts, research, all of the garden shows for all of these decades are in this book. We couldn't do it without this masterpiece, Wrestling in the Garden from Crowbar Press. It's pretty amazing. And this is our final show of uh, 2022, John. Uh, it's been a pleasure. I can't wait to 2023 to go off uh, another 50 years of wrestling at the Garden with you. And uh, I want to yeah. thank all our fans for, out there for sending us well wishes and wishing you the best. And we want to wish everyone out there a happy and healthy holiday season. Happy holidays, everybody. Happy holidays. For John Rizzi and Rich Garcia, I'm Tim Putre. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>